So this is the season of graduations. Of course, most of them have, have passed, and so if you happen to graduate from high school or, or college, congratulations to you. Um, it's usually around this time I think about my own graduation. I realize I graduated 34 years ago in 1985. I have any 85ers out there, anyone? The older people are going, you know, you're just still a young whippersnapper because you were, I graduated in 1955, and some younger people are going, dang, Pastor Dan, you're getting old. But the same year that I graduated, 85, I shipped off to, uh, to basic training. And back then, and you'll remember this, most of you, um, there were no cell phones, right? No cell phones. I, maybe there were the ones that were like, looked like a briefcase with the with curly wire with the big phone set. I think those existed in 1985, but there were no cell phones, no email, no internet. The only way you could contact somebody is through an actual physical hard line, which they didn't allow us to use in boot camp. Um, or snail mail. You actually had to pick up a pen and do the arduous work of writing, you know, letters and words and phrases and sentences on a piece of paper. So the only way people could connect with me during my three months of blackout down in San Diego was to write letters. And the two people who wrote me the most was my mother and my grandmother. I don't know why the females tend to write more, but they did in my experience. Um, And it was something for my, my grandmother to write me because at the time... Her hands were really shaky, so when I got a letter, the the letters were really jagged, and she was legally blind. So not only did she, now legally blind does not mean completely blind. She just couldn't drive a car and she couldn't see really well. So in order for her to write, she had not only to wear glasses, but she had to use a magnifying glass. So if you can imagine glasses and magnifying glass to write with shaky hands. So when I got those letters, they were short, jagged, hard to read with large, large, large print. And she would almost every time um, include a Bible verse and say something like, I'm praying for you. And my mom would kind of do the same thing. Give me a Bible verse, usually the same ones. <laughs> and then she would say, I'm praying for you. At the time, let me just say, I didn't fully understand how important that was to know that they were, they were praying for me. I, I think one of the reasons I don't, you know, I didn't really understand the weight of it was because I think I felt like they did it out of obligation, right? Like they had to because they're my grandmother and mother. Of course you're going to pray for me. And, and this is humbling to say, but when I saw their letters, I wasn't excited as excited about those letters as I was about getting a letter from my girlfriend, right? Mom, grandma, down here, girlfriend, hi, she wrote me awesome. Well, that girlfriend has, for three-plus decades, gone from my life, but family remains. And I underappreciated what they did when they said, we're praying for you. And the reason I know that is because now I'm a dad, and I'm a father. And I can tell you, um, in all honesty, that the people that I pray for the most fervently and frequently are my children. Now, it doesn't mean I don't pray for you or pray for other people, but the people I pray for, and I think most of you parents resonate with this, most fervently and most frequently are my three children. And it's not out of obligation. It's not because I'm a dad and I have to. I am compelled by desperate love to pray for my kids. I mean, it, it makes sense because, you know, you watch them come into the world, right? And they're just this helpless bundle of cuteness, right? 
and you do everything for them, and you would, you, you would do it over again in a heartbeat because you love them. You know, you change them, you burp them, you, you put them in the crib and take them out of the crib, and when they, when they cry, you, you, you hug them, and when they, they're naughty, you discipline them. And I didn't believe it at the time, but I know it now that it definitely hurts the heart of a parent more to spank a kid than a kid getting spanked. Right. Yes, we did spank our kids unapologetically. Um, and then you watch them go through their teenage years and graduate. You're with them the whole time, and, and then you send them out of the nest, right? We still have one in the nest. I don't know if he wants to be in the nest, but he's still in the nest. And I've heard from other people, and now I, I know that just because they leave doesn't mean you don't care doesn't mean you don't love, and certainly doesn't mean you don't pray. I pray probably more intensely for those who have left my home than I do even for the one who's remaining. Because they're gone, you're hoping they survive, <laughs> and perhaps thrive as, as, as Christians. Why? Why is this prayer, this desire, compulsion to pray for your kids more than perhaps others? And I think the answer to that is because they're mine, because they're yours. And that word, mine, is the main word we find in John chapter 17, 9 and 10. It's, a, it's an interesting word, mine. Like when you hear it out of the mouth of a toddler, going over and grabbing a toy from another kid, I should say ripping a toy out of its hands and saying, mine, was well, an expression of selfishness, or you're like, that's embarrassing, not fun. But when two people who love each other use that same word, as, as, as in, I am yours, and you are mine, that speaks volumes. And when the Bible uses language like that, it's covenantal language, as in, I will be your, possessive pronoun, your God, and you will be my chosen people. That word mine is so precious in the Bible, and it is the centerpiece of these two verses. Now, every sermon has a shape. At least it should have a shape unless it's just complete chaos. My sermon is shaped like a tree with two branches. There's the basis, which I'm going to call the word mine, and then two branches prayer and glory. The foundation or the basis of these two branches is this word, mine. Now you're gonna notice it as I read. Jesus says in the middle of his prayer, he says, I am praying for them. You have to back up a couple verses to realize this is, he's talking about a group of people that the Father has given to the Son. And he says it again in a couple of, in the next sentence. He says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. These possessive words, yours, yours, mine, mine. There is this shared ownership between father and son for a designated group of people. And he goes on further in verse 12, which we'll get to next week, to say that he will not lose a single one of those people. Which means, and hear me out on this, this is going to be a theme uh, in these messages, 
It means that Jesus came to establish covenant relationship, covenant-saving relationship, rescue people, and his mission is defined by this people group, and he will be 100% successful. That's explicit, and this is the basis of the entire prayer, is this, there is a people that God has chosen. In verse 12, he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Same word, you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction or the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So even the one that was lost is according to the Prophecy of Scripture, which means it was part of the plan. I won't lose one. Again, this tells us that Jesus' mission will be 100% effective in, in reclaiming these people. Now, again, I recognize that we are wandering into the controversial territory of God choosing some and not others, which makes some people feel uncomfortable and others not so much uncomfortable. But it is territory that you have to deal with because it's all through the scripture. This idea of sovereign election. So either you avoid it or you head, head right into it and try and understand it. Now what I love about the way the Gospel of John, and I would say the entire New Testament and the entire Bible deals with it, is it, it deals with it in a way that does not compromise um, people's responsibility to choose. In fact, it establishes both. And even within our understanding of God's love, there is this tension between these truths that I don't believe should be collapsed and resolved to be philosophically consistent. So, for example, we have within the Gospel of John itself this sense in which God loves the world, this general, global, universal love. For God so loved the world. The world that rejected Jesus in John chapter 1 is the world that God loves. So there's a general love God has for everybody. So I can tell anybody on planet Earth, God loves you. Because it's true. But in this prayer of John chapter 17, there is a particular love that he has for those whom the Father has given to the Son. That is, I made known to them, this group, your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them a particular group of people. This is a saving, revealing love. So even within the Gospel of John, you have a general love and you have a particular love. And you don't have to settle on one or the other because they're both there, you see? In the same way that Jesus can choose his disciples. And at the same time, he can say, whoever believes in him, it's open. Did you notice the prayer that David read? At the first part, he gives thanks to the Father who has hidden things. And that Jesus gets to choose who to reveal the Father to. That's choice. And right after that, like Jesus' divine choice, and then right after this, that he says, come to me, all you who are weary. See, it's just, it, it, it keeps them both there. And I think the better part of Christian maturity would say, preserve those things without trying to collapse them so they make sense to you. Now, with that said, if, we, if you leave the whole God chooses people, what choice do I have? Up in the realm of al algebraic theology. Remember algebra? It's the most exciting class in all of high school, right? <laughs> Horrible. 
who, who loved that class? I mean, maybe some weird mathematician nerds, but I didn't. Like A plus B equals, and you got all of the syllogisms. And Well, some people, when it comes to understanding who God is, loves to talk about it in syllogisms, in, in, like, like biblical algebra. And in doing so, in trying to figure out how does A plus B equals C, I can't understand God's sovereignty and human choice. And in, in, in leaving it there, we miss the whole heart of it, like the, the wonder of the fact that God would choose a people. Maybe this will help because, again, these verses, um, all mine are yours and yours are mine, Jesus says. This ownership, this belonging, this possession in a positive, beneficial sense. So my wife and I had this friend in Chicago. And um, at one point, I think it was a company dinner or barbecue, she got to tell us the story of her adopting a baby boy. And it's a, a story I still remember to this day because it was so moving. She told us that she was, her and her husband, leaving church, and they were walking by a dumpster. And by the dumpster was an infant child. Like, that's a really pathetic sight, that someone would actually take their infant, typically the object of great parental love, and discard it next to a garbage can. Well, this woman made a choice, she, a choice of compassion and mercy. She picked up that baby, and she took it home with her. She called social services, and social services came to the house. And social services tried to take the baby away. And I don't think she did anything illegal, but she wouldn't let them. <laughs> she fought tooth and nail for this baby discarded by a garbage can. Later, it ended up in court where, at great expense to the husband and wife, they, again, fought tooth and nail to adopt that baby discarded at a garbage can. And they raised him as their own. Adopted kids have all the rights and privileges of a biological child. They raised him and gave him a home of love they chose do you think that little baby discarded by the garbage can and brought into a home by way of adoption looked at his mom and dad and said, I have a really hard time believing you chose me. Feels very unfair. No. The act of choosing to rescue that baby discarded by a garbage can was an act of unspeakable love. So listen. You and I, along with everybody else on planet Earth, forgive the negative metaphor, but we're discarded on the garbage pile. Not because God isn't loving, but because humans rebel against God. Because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That we don't deserve his love. And yet, he made a choice to take discarded, fallen, sinful human beings and to lift them up. At great expense to himself, he fought tooth and nail. If the death of his own son is not fighting tooth and nail, I don't know what is. 
to cleanse us from our sin. And then you know what? He continues to watch over us as his children. When we fall, he comforts us and brings us back. And when we are naughty, he disciplines us because he loves us. And someday he will bring us into his presence and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death will be no more, no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore because he's going to make all the negative things pass away. Now, do you think we should have... That choice that God made to save anybody, you, me, is not an algebraic equation. It is an act, a choice of unspeakable love and mercy. And to know that because of that, God looks out over all people who have genuine faith that he has rescued from the garbage can. And he says to us, and he says to the world, and he says to all of the principalities, powers, and demonic forces, these are mine. You may persecute them, you may tempt them, but you cannot have them because they are mine. See, to me the word mine is it's not, a, it's not a problem, it's like, it's a beautiful thing. That's the foundation of this prayer. There's a people who God has said, these are mine. And what great comfort and confidence do we have in the simple fact that God looks over us and says, mine. I need to hear that. I need to know that. I need to believe that. We need to think about that. Instead of avoid it, just embrace the fact that we're his. We are his treasured and chosen possession. We are his, and he is our God. So that's the foundation. There's two branches that come out of that foundation. The first branch is is prayer. Is the fact that we belong to the Lord um, is the basis for Jesus praying for us. Notice verse 9. He says, I am praying for them. Same group. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me for, important word, for, that's because, that's the foundation. The reason, the impetus behind why he's praying is we are his, okay? He's, he's praying for those whom God has, has a special love for. And that in and of itself is a huge encouragement. Like Jesus prays, and praying is in the present tense, which means he doesn't pray once But the idea is that Jesus continues to pray for his people. And that is further um, explicitly taught to us in the book of Hebrews, where we read, consequently he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost, that is, completely, those who draw near to God through him, that is, through Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them always lives to make intercession for them. Now think about that for a moment. We, we glory in the fact that, that Jesus died for us as our substitutionary sacrifice so that he gets all the bad stuff, we get all the good stuff. He, he takes all the sin, we get his righteousness, right? And we, we glory in his resurrection because um, the source of all life and future life and resurrection life comes from that event. So without the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're not children of heaven, we're children of hell. 
But the work of Jesus moves on and continues on. Like right now, Jesus continues in his work of being our advocate, of, of praying for us. And if, if I bring John chapter 10 into this, I, I believe he prays for his people by name. The very thought that Jesus right now is praying for you. And each day as you live, he is interceding. That means, and whatever this looks like, I don't know. Coming to the throne of his father and saying, hey, Dan, he's really screwing up. He needed some help. I don't know. Because certainly that happens a lot. But he's praying all the time, which means, listen, like his work continues. So when you feel weak and worn out, like you can't take another step, he's praying for you. When you're struggling with temptation, he is praying for you. When you fail, you fall flat on your face and you're just there in your guilt. He's praying for you that restoration would happen and forgiveness and conviction. In every part of our lives, when we're out of energy, he's praying for us. We persevere in faith, hope, and love. Why? Because he's praying for you by name each day. Like, he is 100% in your corner, and he's, he's representing you to the, to the, to, 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 to the Father of God Almighty. It, just the simple knowledge as you wake up, if you could believe and get a hold of the simple fact that Jesus is committed to praying for us by name each day, I think we'd walk with a little more confidence, a little more gratitude, and certainly a lot more joy. Right now, he's, Jesus is praying for us by name. That's, that's amazing. Why? Because we're his. Because God has done something to make us the word mine. That's one pattern. And I just, again, to encourage you as I need encouragement all the time. That ministry of intercession, that ministry of prayer, Jesus shares with us. So somehow, as we pray, God moves, right? And I, I firmly believe that my life is a product of two women who prayed for me. Like, Jesus is the prayer. And however much we're moved to pray for our children, um, he infinitely so, to pray for those who are his. But then to join in that as, as a parent or someone just the Lord, will you reach down and rescue that little Dan Deckard and boot camp? Um, that I can't tell you how much important that is to be doing that for your children. That's a side note. So that's one branch is that you have this idea that we are his and out of that Jesus is praying for us. And then I said the second branch has to do with glory. The last part of verse 10, he says, all mine are yours and uh, and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. (laughs) I am glorified in them? Like, he's not speaking in the future like, well, I will be glorified in them once they get their act together and start acting like buffoons. No, he says, I am, I'm glorified in them. And it, it, that's, that's kind of like remarkable because, you know, you read about the disciples prior to the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost and you realize that they kind of bumble along, right? Like, they get it to some degree, like, who do you say that I am? Well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter says. And, 
And Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, a.k.a. the Spirit of God moved in your heart to recognize me for who I am. And then he proceeds to turn around and rebuke Jesus for talking about suffering and dying. And Jesus responds and says, get behind me, Satan, right? (laughs) That's not exactly a stellar student. They're arguing over who's going to be greater in the kingdom, which is a complete failure to understand the gospel, not to mention the nature of true biblical love. True biblical love doesn't try to put oneself first, but second. So they, he's glorified, and yet they screw up. And yet they also, at the same time, like I said, they kind of they get it, and they make the right professions. And, and at times when the crowds are leaving, as we looked at last week, they remain there. And Jesus is like, oh, you're going to go too? And they're like, Why, where, 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 where are we going to go? It's like you have the words of eternal life, and, and we know that you're the Holy One of Israel. So, so there was something there that they had that kept them glued to Jesus, even though they were screw-ups. And what I think it was is they understood at some level, they understood that Jesus was the treasure worth living and dying for, worth giving up their fishing industry for, their nets and their boats for. That is, the Spirit of God had, had revealed something of incalculable worth. And that, that, that glorified Jesus. And that's both a challenge and an encouragement, right? It's a challenge because... Beginning of this prayer, we saw that main, main petition was for glory. Jesus says, glorify me that I might glorify you. That's what we said it's the apex of human uh, uh, goal is to glorify God. And here Jesus is saying, because they are mine, they are glorifying me. Like to know that if we have to wait until we're perfect to glorify God, we're never going to do it until we reach heaven or the new creation. But to know that if you belong to the Lord and his Holy Spirit lives in your life and you're endeavoring each day to live humbly with your knees on the ground and asking for help, knowing Jesus is praying for you, and then you're living as best as you can for his glory, you know what? He is glorifying himself through you. And that's a huge encouragement because most of the time we feel like buffoons. And sometimes we just are. But... To know that we're his, to know the love of God, to have being rooted and grounded in his love and knowing that Christ prays for us each day and that he is glorifying himself through us as we abide in the vine is of great encouragement. But I want to hear you to hear uh, above all else, church, that Jesus is saying to you who believe, you are mine. You are your mine. Don't let that be a question. And if you don't know the Lord, he offers an open invitation. Whoever believes in him, this is a time to believe in him. And then you come to understand, wow, I am his. You're part of his flock that he'll never forsake. And he will bring you into the pearly gates of the new creation where you will see him face to face. Amen. Um, our brother Tom is going to lead us in a couple of words of communion. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, if I could have the servers come up, and then Tom will explain a little bit more about how we're going to take communion. Father, we thank you for being so good to us and rescuing us when we didn't deserve it, and help us to live in the certainty and the security of knowing that truth that we are yours. 
I pray that you bless this time of communion where we remember what it costs for us to be yours. In Christ's name I pray, amen.